Midway on Wednesday night. The only problem is when I make that promise, I'm not going to be at this midway. I've got to speak at the other midway, the one that's between Moulton and Decatur, in their summer series. And guess, I just thought this was sort of, and I don't guess you would say funny, but uh, interesting. Guess what their topic is, or their, their, their theme for the summer is? The battle belongs to the Lord. And so, you know, I, I could probably find a lesson or two that, that would fit. We're going to be talking, uh, I'll be talking about uh, uh, the battle uh, of Bible knowledge. And so uh, uh, we'll be able to do that on this coming Wednesday night. It's also their vacation Bible school, so I'll be in the auditorium class with that. But, but if you can, be here with us or be here at Midway uh, for the beginning of our summer series and tell other folks about it. Because the topics that were covered, even covering this summer, even though some of them are quite long, uh, the words are quite long, they're quite interesting to, to be able to study through them. They're things that, that people, whether they know it or not, are dealing with on a daily basis during our lifetime right here. In the book of John, chapter 9, at verse number 2, here we find the words, the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Now, tonight I don't want to cover the topic of, that's found here about the blind man and, and the parable or the story that's told here. Not just, it's not a parable, it's an actual story about things that are going on. But I do want to borrow us from that question. Who, who sinned? That's what his disciples wanted to know. Who sinned? The man or the parents? Who sinned? This man that, that he is blind or, or, or his parents before he was born so that he was born blind? And I want to borrow that topic or that question tonight. And I'm going to ask the question, and I want you to think about it very carefully. Who sinned? The people for being homosexual? Who sinned? The people for being in a gay bar? Or who sinned? The terrorist who did the shooting? Unless you've been under a rock somewhere, you know that last night there was a, a horrible event that took place down in Orlando, Florida, where a man went in and began to shoot the place up. And at last word that I had, there were 50 people who had been murdered. 50 people who had been murdered. Now I want to tell you tonight as we begin this lesson, I did not have this topic on my radar to talk about it tonight, but... But uh, I felt like I needed to change in midstream, and so we changed. We won't have a PowerPoint tonight. Didn't have time to get all of that done this afternoon. But I did want to address the topic. I did want to think about the current things that are going on. And like I said in a few days, Brother Ricky will be talking about terrorism and, and dealing more with that. But, but I want to think about something else. Who sinned? These people who were there in that place or the man who went in? All of us would agree that according to what the Bible teaches, it's a sin to practice the homosexual lifestyle. It's also a sin to go into a bar and, and, and to, to drink and to do the things that normally are done there. And it's certainly a sin for one to, to commit murder and go in, in any place, regardless of where it is, and commit a sin like the one that was done down in Orlando. Uh, just the day before, there was a, a man who walked up to a singer and shot her there in Orlando as well. And so there are a lot of terrible, tragic things that are done. Now, as we think about this lesson and approach the topic tonight, 
You know, one of the things that the people in Jesus' day, one of the common things that, that they believed was that whenever there was a disaster, it was a punishment for sin. And that prevailing thought had been around for a long, long time. If you go back to the book of Job, which is probably the first Old Testament book that was actually written down, you read in there that, that Job basically lost everything that he had except for his life, including his health. And we all know the story of Job. And when his friends, they come to comfort him, when they, when they come, they look at him, they can't talk for a number of days, and, and finally when they do strike up a conversation, you know what they want to know? Job, what did you do? It's not so much that we feel for you. Job, what did you do to bring all of this on yourself? And you know, that wasn't just in the day of Job. It went on. We know that after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended back up into heaven, that same kind of thought was still there. If you turn to the book of Acts, chapter, five, or chapter 28, rather, at verse number 4, the Bible says, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. Now, now what did they see? Well, Paul was doing his mission work and shipwrecked and, and, and he's wet along with the other folks around him. The, the people on a particular location, they take him in, they, they build a fire and, and Paul decides he's going to throw another log on the fire and when he does, he reaches down and a snake bites him. And it was a snake that the people knew to be poisonous. They knew that it was deadly. They knew that it would kill him. But Paul just shakes it off. But when they saw that happen, notice as you continue reading, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said one to another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They were sure that Paul had done something terribly wrong. Now, he was a prisoner, remember that. He had a guard, and so they had justification, at least, in, from sight, to think that he had done something wrong, but they thought that it must have been the worst that a person could do. He had actually killed somebody. They thought that justice was going to take place because the snake bit him and he's going to die anyway. It's the same as saying when tragic events take place that there is a sin that is involved. And so it was a, a common thing. But even on, as Jesus was alive and as he was teaching here on this earth, there was an occasion when the same kind of thing is brought up to him. Turn, if you will, to the book of Luke chapter 13, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time tonight. Luke chapter 13, it's very interesting when we begin reading there what takes place in this chapter and what Jesus says in regard to what takes place. Looking at verse number or chapter number 13, verse number 1, the Bible says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now let's stop right there and let's analyze this verse. Let's think about it for a moment. Here are some people who are talking to Jesus. They, they are there as he's doing his work, his ministry work, and, and they bring something up. They, they, they have a new topic. It's almost as if they say, Hey, Jesus, have you heard about... 
And then they're going to tell him, you know, about something that has gone on. Have you heard about what Pilate has done? Have you heard that there were some Galileans, some Galilean Jews who were here, and they were worshiping, they were offering their sacrifices, and Pilate went in, or at least sent his soldiers in, and rather than arresting them, rather than taking and having a trial for them, he just goes in and slaughters them right where they stand. Jesus, have you heard about that? And Jesus, as smart as he was because he was God on earth, and as perceptive as he was, he began to understand some things about the motives behind the question that they asked. They didn't just want to know, have you heard the latest gossip? They didn't just want to know, Jesus, did you hear on CNN or Fox News or or something about what happened? Jesus knew there was something else that was up. Now before we talk about that, let's think about the incident in itself. Uh, We have no other record of this incident anywhere else in history. There's nothing else recorded about it, but that doesn't mean that it is not true, that it, that it did not take place. It's completely in character with Pilate because he was a, a very ruthless ruler even though he didn't have, he, he wasn't an emperor, he was just a governor. He was still a ruthless person and, and so it's completely in character for things that he would normally have done. And some even speculate that, that it was this event, and we have no way of knowing for sure because the Bible doesn't confirm it for us, but some have speculated that, that the event was so heinous that it caused a dispute between Pilate and King Herod. Now we know that they were having some sort of dispute because when we find uh, the trial of Jesus going on, We find that Pilate decides to send Jesus to Herod, and Herod returns the favor and and says, No, said, I'm going to let Pilate handle this one. We know that according to the book of Luke, chapter 23, at verse number 12, that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had enmity with each other. If indeed the Roman ruler had gone into the temple and had slaughtered these people right there where they were, then it would have caused an uproar in Jerusalem where King Herod was. King Herod being favorable to the Jews and, and Pilate being more favorable to the Romans. It, it would have caused tension at the very least. But we don't know for sure that that's what caused it, but, but we do know that the event took place. And if it is indeed that event, then they resolved their differences at the time of Jesus' uh, trial here on this earth. And as we look at it, it was a, an event that was so heinous within itself that, that it's almost unimaginable. And mingling their blood with the sacrifices that they were making. What a very, very sad day that must have been. But it's Jesus' reaction that I want you to think about. I want you to think about what he says here in verse number 2. Being the perceptive one that he truly was, he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Now, get that point. Get what goes on here. The people come and say, Have you heard about what Pilate did? 
Have you heard about him killing these people, mingling their blood with the sacrifices that they were offering? Have you heard about that? And Jesus responds by saying, Are you telling me that you think that these people were sinners above everybody else? That they really deserved what they got? Now, we're not told anything about their character. We're not told anything about who they were. We're just told they're Galileans. We're told that they're worshiping God. They're offering sacrifices under the Old Testament law just as they should have and would have done. But Jesus says when, they, when he hears this, do you mean to tell me that you really think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You see, it seems that the idea that these men bring to Jesus, this message that they deliver to him, it seems that it may have been quite smugly presented. At least we read that between the lines. It almost seems as if Jesus perceives that these men are implying, at the very least, that these must have been really bad folks to suffer what they suffered. And Jesus pretty much looks at them and said, do you really believe that? And then there's verse 3. You've heard it quoted. If you've been a member of the Lord's Church for long at all, you've heard it quoted hundreds of times. That's where Jesus makes this remark. No. No. If you're reading from the King James Version, the way I learned it and the way I still quote it, I tell you nay. But it's the same force. No. You see, Jesus raises the point that these people think that these men, just because of what they have suffered, that they're sinners far above everybody else. And Jesus said, No. That's not the case. Uh Uh-uh. Wrong. Now, I'm putting words in his mouth. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but we get the point. Jesus said no. And then we get the rest of that verse. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Do you think they're worse than anybody else? Evidently they did. Jesus says, you're wrong. They're not. Here's what you need to know. Unless you repent, you too will perish. It's not the case. So let me let you in on a little secret. Jesus is saying, If you do not repent, you will suffer a similar death. You know, it's very interesting, the words that Jesus said. I don't know if you've studied this passage very much at all. What did Jesus mean when he tells them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish? 
I realize, you know, that it's been preached, and I believe that it's, that it's true, that unless we repent, we'll lose our soul. I think he's right. So we'll go ahead and make that statement, but we'll also say, I think there's more there than just that. Here's some people who did not evidently believe the things that Jesus was teaching them. Their life didn't match up with it. They hadn't repented of the things that they had taught. They, they, many of them did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God and would not do that for many, uh, uh, many more days, and, and, and some of them never would. Do you remember what Jesus taught about in the book of Matthew chapter 24? In the first part of that chapter, he's asked a question. He he talks about the temple being destroyed, and he's asked a question. The disciples thought he had to be talking about the end of time. And so they ask, well, when will these things be? And so Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then later in that chapter, I think it's about verse 36 or so, he begins talking about the end of time. But it's in that first section that he talks about the destruction of of Jerusalem itself that would take place in A.D. 70, some 40 years, a little less than that, uh, than from the time that he was saying this, the destruction of Jerusalem. And and beginning there in Matthew chapter 24, uh, about verse number 15, he, he begins to tell them some things that they needed to know. When you see the, the, the army... The, the, the abomination of desolation, I think, is the way that it's termed in Matthew chapter 24. But basically, when you see the Roman army coming, you better be heading for the hills. Uh, he's talking to the people of Judah. He calls them out, specifies them. Remember, Jerusalem was in Judah and in that uh, realm, in that country. And he says, when you see him coming, you better run for the hills because it's going to be worse than anything you have ever imagined. Vespasian was the ruler, the general rather, who led the army up to the gates of Jerusalem. The uprising took place in about 66 A.D., or yeah, 66 A.D., and by 68 A.D. they they had pretty much quelled everything and they were headed for Jerusalem itself. Well, long about that time, Nero, the emperor, committed suicide and Vespasian was called back because Vespasian, who is the leading general, is now about to become the emperor of Rome. And so when he's called back, his army withdraws to some extent. That opens the door for the people to to head out, to get away. If you believe what Jesus said, had said, what would you have been doing? Heading for the hills. But unfortunately, many thousands of people didn't do that. Vespasian becomes the emperor and he sends Titus, his son, who's now the general, and they besiege the city of Jerusalem again. And it's one of the most horrible things that ever took place in history. The Bible talks about it's one of the worst things that ever happened. People were starving to death. They were eating their own children, all kinds of things. They eventually broke into the city. And they began to 
to ransack the temple and basically to, to destroy it and burn it down. Well, let me just read the account, pretty much an eyewitness account, I guess you might say, of what took place at that time. This is from Josephus' account of the temple destruction. He said the rebels shortly after attacked the Romans again and a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary, that's in the temple, and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right up to the temple itself. Then one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and with no dread of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. As the flame shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to see the res- or flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength for the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their eyes. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impetuosity of the legions, for passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions, others stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos died as miserably as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed. They were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers and fire could not be checked, he entered the building with his generals, looked at the holy place of the sanctuary and all of its furnishings, which exceeded by far the accounts current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendid repute in her own. As the flames had not yet penetrated the inner sanctum, but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still, some to, uh, still time to save the structure. He ran out by personal appeals. He endeavored to persuade his men to put out the fire, instructing uh, Liberius, a centurion of his bodyguard of lancers, to club any man who disobeyed his orders. But, but their respect for Caesar and their fear of the centurion staff who was trying to check them were overpowered by their rage their detestation of the Jews, and an utterly uncontrolled lust for battle. Most of them were spurred on, moreover, by the expectation of loot, convinced that the interior was full of money and dazzled by 
observing that everything around them was made of gold. But they were forestalled by one of those who had entered into the building and who, when Caesar dashed out to restrain his troops, pushed a firebrand in the darkness into the hinges of the gate. Then when the flames suddenly shot up from the interior, Caesar and his generals withdrew. No one was left to prevent those outside from kindling the blaze. Thus the defiance of Caesar's wishes, in defiance of Caesar's wishes, the temple was set on fire. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it. Countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for age, no regard was accorded rank, children, Old men, laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. Through the roar of the flames, streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze, and the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. There were the war cries of the Roman legions as they swept onwards in mass, the yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword, the panic of the people cut off above, fled into the arms of their enemies. And their shrieks, as they, might, as they met their fate, the cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes of the city below, and now people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger, when they beheld the temple on fire, found strength once more to lament and wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din, but more horrifying than the den were the sufferings. The temple mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over the heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. What did they say about Pilate? Oh, he killed some folks. He mingled their blood with the sacrifices. Jesus said, unless you repent, you're likewise going to perish. There's more in that word likewise than sometimes we see. For thousands upon thousands of people died in that very temple when that same Roman army that Jesus had predicted would come did. Do you think you're any less sinners than they? Nah. But Jesus was not finished yet. Look at verse 4. It's almost as if Jesus says, now let me ask you something. You brought up about the, uh, what Pilate has done. Now let me ask you something. Verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He said, let me ask you that question. 
And it's interesting that when Jesus asks that question, when he says, do you think there were worse offenders? The word that's translated offenders is the word for debt, debtors. Do you think that they owe more, that they're worse debtors than anybody else? But I want you to note as you, as you think about Jesus' words here, again, this, this incident is not recorded in any other historical document that we know of, but very likely what he's talking about is a tower that had been built beside the Pool of Siloam. We, we read about the Pool of Siloam and miracles that Jesus did in and around that pool. And, and, and he says, here's a tower that fell. And when it fell... There were some people around it or in it. Whether they're in or around it, we do not know. Eighteen of them, we know, lost their life. It fell, crushing eighteen people. These folks were likely just citizens going about their everyday business. They weren't doing anything wrong. Why the tower fell, we don't know. We don't know if it was because it was old. We don't know if there was a big windstorm. We don't know if there was an earthquake. We don't know if they, they just had poor construction. We don't know, but we do know it fell. And it's evidently not a deliberate act in the way that we read the things here. So we're left to believe that it's likely a tragic accident with multiple fatalities. You ever heard of something like that happening? Decks collapsing, bridges collapsing, other kinds of events that take place. Nobody is really at fault. They're just accidents. People die. Jesus is basically saying, let me ask you a question. Do you think just because they died... They're worse debtors than anybody else. Look at verse 5. No. Again, if you're reading from the King James Version, I tell you nay. He's basically just saying no. It's not the case. No. But unless you repent, you will all Likewise, perish. The deeper meaning is this, whether death comes by intentional violence or unfortunate accident or even by expected natural causes, we better have our heart and life aimed in the right direction. No matter where or when. For there's a far worse worse punishment. It's far worse to perish eternally than it is in a terrorist attack, a tragic accident, or even in your own tranquil bed. Far worse to lose your soul. Two thoughts as we close this lesson. As Christians, we must never 
glory in the death of others. Ecclesiastes, or rather Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. The Lord instructs Ezekiel to write these words. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For while you die, O house of Israel. See, God doesn't want men to have to suffer eternally. And that's what's going to happen when those who have never obeyed Him, those who live a very sinful, unrighteous, ungodly lifestyle, that's what happens. God says, I have no pleasure in that. By contrast to that, remember what He said in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. He does welcome the righteous home. And so we must never glory in the death of others. But number two, as Christians, we must never believe our sins are any less damning than the sins of others. That's where it really hits home. The lifestyle that many of those were living as evidenced in the place where they were. The intentions of the man who went in and shot them. Sinful. But as Christians, we must never believe our sins are any less damning than any other sins. It's interesting that when Jesus, in these two verses, in Luke chapter 13, at verse 3, and also in 13 verse 5, when he says repent, it's interesting that in the original language, it's in what's known as, and when we say these things, don't try to remember all of it. It's in the present active subjunctive second person plural. That's what it is. What does that mean? Here's what you need to remember. When it's in the present tense, it's something you keep on doing. It's not a one-time action. We keep on repenting. Or we will perish. We didn't just repent before we went down into the water and everything's taken care of. All those sins before we, that we've committed before, they're washed away. We repented of those things. We changed our life. The intent of our heart, they're gone. But that doesn't mean that when we're living as a Christian, we're perfect. We're trying to be. We want to be. We're doing the best that we can. But we still mess up. And when we do, we repent again. 
But our sins are no less damning than the sins of others, no matter what they are. That's simply another way of saying we'll both end up in the same place. You see, repentance is a day-by-day affair in which we keep putting away the sin so that our hearts remain right. When we see events like the one that just took place, we realize that wicked, evil people are involved. We're tempted, perhaps, to think Well, maybe they got what they deserved. But I'm pretty sure Jesus would say, no. And would say to us the same words that he said to those who brought the bad news about the Galileans to him? No. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It may be tonight that there's sin in your life that you need to repent of. If that's the case, and it's known in a public way, then you need the prayers of the Lord's church. Nobody knows about it but you and God. Ask Him to forgive you. But change your heart. Change your life. Maybe you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel. You need to make a complete change. If that's the case, we invite you to do that. Whatever your need may be, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation tonight, come right now. Am I no more? I am mine no more. I've been bought with blood. I am mine no more. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And he rules my life. Jesus is my Lord. He will come again. He will come again. And he'll take me come again I am mine no more I am mine no more I've been by